And I would like to welcome everybody to Unknown Philosophers Live. This is going to be the Saturday edition, episode number nine. Uh, you can find us on Facebook.com just by searching Unknown Philosophers. You can also find us on UnknownPhilosophers.com. I'd like to bring in uh, my co-host and co-creator of Unknown Philosophers, Brother Cosmo. How are you doing this morning? Doing great, Brother Briggs. We got some. Uh, we have a really uh, exciting guest today uh, who will uh, open up your mind. He will open up your heart. He will uh, hopefully guide you to further study and further digging around into some of the Masonic uh, mysteries that are shrouded out there within our ritual and 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 just general history in itself um his name is uh brother ronald w richards uh he is a past master uh he's been a freemason for 20 years uh he was initiated in october 1999 passed and raised in 2000 uh brother ron has uh, has occupied the oriental chair five times and served as this uh district deputy wow. master for three years um He's also held various Grand Lodge positions here in Arizona. Uh, Brother Ron left the East uh, the first time uh, he served as the Lodge Master in 2005. And then he wondered, uh, is, this, is this all there is? I mean, that's kind of the question that he posed upon himself. And in 2006, he began some serious study uh, of the ritual and the symbolism of Freemasonry. Um, and in this process, Brother Ron also discovered that Freemasonry involves the studies of various schools of thought, uh, including Kabbalah, alchemy, Christian and Judaic uh, mysticism, uh, mythology, the understanding of in-depth psychology in the, as, a, as far as the religious history is concerned. Uh, this led him to the study of mythology and uh, Jungian, I think I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> that, uh, psychology at uh, the Pacifica Graduate Institute in California. And then Brother Ron also realized that the vast majority of the crafts uh, lacked any real understanding of the underlying significance of the royal arts. He undertook to establish a method that would prepare them for their journey through masonry. Uh, and I believe this is part of the Master Craftsman Mm. Uh, program that he does over down in Tucson. It's got a great Shrider. program. Yeah, great, great program. One of my favorites. And with no further ado, I'd like to bring on um, Brother Ron. And uh, today he's going to be discussing Young and Freemasonry. Brother Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cosmo. I appreciate it. Riggs, thank you for inviting me. Brothers, I hope you enjoy today. And uh, feel free to ask any questions as we go along. But the idea of Carl Jung, Jung's been a fascinating individual to me in my studies with doing the work with masonry and the arts. Talking about Jung and Freemasonry is really important to understand because as Briggs has pointed out to me earlier today, one of his books, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, uh, what page, I think it was 232? Yes. Uh, Jung talks about his family crest and it has a phoenix on it. Well, apparently his grandfather changed the symbolism on the uh, crest to reflect that of the Rosicrucian and Dionysian and a couple other things in there because as a rebellion to his grandfather, and he was a, a, Swiss, a Swiss Mason. Yeah, so there's yeah. a Masonic connection with Freemasonry and Carl Jung. Also, when you look at this, talking about Jung and Freemasonry, this is such a wide uh, area. We could talk for days. And I'm going to get into a couple things here, uh, try to go through. We have some time. But one of the things we want, I want to point out to you is Masonry is a mythology. It's mythos. Now, every one of us has a myth, no matter who we are. They'll say, no, I don't believe you. You have a myth. Your myth is how you see the world the way it's supposed to be, how you see your life. And that's why you live by. Now, Campbell talks about the myth. He says there's four functions of them. First one is to evoke a sense of grateful awe before the monstrous mystery that is existence, as he calls it. 
The second one is they present an image of the cosmos and how it was created. But the next two are runs that really are important to understand. The third function of it is to validate and maintain a certain sociological system, a shared set of rights and wrongs, proprieties or improprieties, on which our particular social unit depends for its existence. Now that can be a nation, it can be a religion, it can be an organization, it can be your family. Even us, all of us, we have one that are misbind with our family, which in turn bind with our community, which in turn bind with our tribe, so to speak, and our culture. And they are what drive us. Those are what we consider to be. For example, there would be things that we think to be inappropriate that other cultures think nothing of. But that's the way their myth works. The fourth cause of it is psychological. The myth must carry the individual through the stages of his life, from birth through maturity, through senility to death. The mythology must do so in accords with the social order of his group, the cosmos is understood by his group, and the monstrous mystery. So you see this is guiding down through the various levels. Now this last one's really important. How many of you have ever heard of midlife crisis? We all have. We've all suffered it. Well, here's the thing, very briefly. Each of us has a myth. We're taught implicitly that as we grow, our job is to grow up, get educated. Ladies, get married, have babies, and raise them. Men, grow up, get married, get a job, support the family, get the kids out. Well, this takes about maybe 40 years of our life, the first half of it. What happens then? We have the midlife crisis. It's very typically pointed at the male. And there's a reason why. On the ladies, what happens? The children go up, get married, have babies, and she's a grandma. She's back into her myth of life of nurturing. So her, her mythology is working still. Us guys, it doesn't work quite that way. We have a choice. When your myth is no longer working, you'll either try to recreate it, are you create a new myth to live by? And the midlife crisis is that point where you're trying to find a new myth to live by, what's going to work for you. But instead, you're going back to try to recreate the old thing. So suddenly you're back in that hot rod motorcycle you had when you were in high school or whatever it might be. So that, that, you see, I, mean, I tell you this, so you can see how myth lives with us and guides us through our life. We don't realize it, but it is there. Now, one of the other things that uh, Joseph Campbell talks about, which really applies to us, is the hero's journey. All right? And I bring that up, just keep this in mind, because I want to go into a thing called consciousness now. Jung did a lot of work with this. And, in fact, you've all heard of Freud. Freud based, for the most part, his theory upon sexual power. The idea that little girls wanted to have sex with daddy, basically, and little boys wanted to have sex with mommy. And he and uh, Jung, Jung was much younger than him, got along quite well. In fact, Freud was working to push him for uh, positions that he had to be his replacement. But some of the things that Jung talked about with his consciousness bothered Jung. So he talked with his wife and on a trip he made to tour America he said he could not talk about the conscious the way Freud did he did not believe that and so he came out with his idea of what consciousness is and how it works and here we have the psyche and you have the uh, ego you have the shadow you have the uh, personal consciousness the personal unconsciousness and the community uh, communal unconsciousness those all tie together when he did this that was unforgivable to Freud, and they parted ways for the rest of their lives. So the point of it is consciousness, we all have it supposedly. Now, what is it? Its simple definition is sentience or awareness of internal or external existence. It's very puzzling and controversial, being at once the most familiar and yet the most mysterious aspect of our lives. 
Perhaps the only widely agreed notion about the topic is that it exists. As we go forward today, I would like you to think of it this way through the philosophical idea that there are five levels of consciousness. The first one is a simple wakefulness. You can compare this to babies. What do babies do? Sleep, eat, dump, repeat. They seek comfort, they want to be held, and, that's, and feel secure. That's their level. In a little while, uh, these changes as you go from one level to another, isn't just suddenly today you're going from one to the other. It morphs over time. But there are breaks in here, so to speak. You see things happening. This, all of us that have had children and watched them grow up, you see the little switches coming on in their minds. And you can recognize when they're wow, he just made so many changes. He's moving along or she's moving along to a different level. The next level is self-awareness, and it starts becoming cognizant around about the age of 15 months. They become cognizant of themselves. They develop an awareness of the close world around us, and they begin to learn the rules of interaction and manipulation. And they do. Babies know how to manipulate us, and that's fine. That's how we, we all do it. We learn to manipulate. Manipulation, we think of as a bad word, but it's not. It's when it's used for bad purposes, it becomes a bad thing. Now, those first two levels, we don't need to spend a lot of time. We've done all we need to do with them. But the next three levels are important. Now, we see these related in the lodge. Can anybody tell me where you see that? You should see this at the altar. We have the three lesser lights. Now, a lot of lodges put them into an isosceles triangle. But they should be placed in a three, four, five triangle. And they represent these levels of consciousness. Now, the level three is the animal world. And you see this tied in with the Kabbalah tree of life as well. But this is the animal world. We're functioning and cognizant. You worry about food, security, <laughs> shelter. Pardon? She got halfway before Edwin. Yep. Okay. <laughs> the here and now of life is whatever they've been worried about in this level. This is existence. Striving to keep the family fed, sheltered, grow up, and just deal with everything. You're bound by the practicalities of life. You're not capable of appreciating the elements associated with the next level coming up. And we'll talk about that in a second. But we're so busy with life, we don't get to think about the things, the existential questions. What is life about? Why are we here? Is this all there is? As Peggy Lee said in her song for this older guys. Is this all there is? Well, not really, but we'll come to that. Now, this level is the level of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, the problem with this is it's all masculine. And because of this, this creates much unrest and conflict in us. The testosterone, you know how it guys goes. So we can't live long at this level because of its intensity. And so either we will fall back to a lower level or we try to move to the next level. And that's where masonry is about, is moving from this level to the higher levels of consciousness. Now, the levels three and four, the symbolism is something that Jung spent a lot of time working with, years. And as we go into the fourth level, this is the awareness of a higher level of existence, a spiritual level. In 1948 and 49, the Catholic Church placed the Virgin Mary into the Trinity and made a quaternary. All right. Now we're told to look at this sort of thing within the lodge. Because this symbolically represents the merger of the feminine with the masculine. You see it today happening in our society. The Me Too, things like this. You're seeing more women being accepted at higher levels. But where do you see this in the lodge? We're all men, but where do you see the, fem the emerging of men, masculine and feminine? I'll give you two places in the uh, first degree. The lesser lights. Remember what they talk about. The moon, the sun, the master of the lodge. Now, master of the lodge doesn't mean a Masonic Lodge, 
It's referring to each of us. We are each our own lodge within. Now the symbolism of the sun represents the, man, the animal world, the masculine. And the moon represents the spiritual intellect, the inner side of us, the feminine side. What does our ritual tell us to do? We're told with govern our lodges with equal regularity. That means to merge these and accept them. Okay, the, we move from the level of doing, which is probably, we're at level three, move into this space of four, which is that of peace and tranquility. Now, it doesn't mean you stop with things that are in three. The level four person is capable of doing the things of level three, the practical things of life but they're not bound by them. How many of you have noticed that as we reach a certain age and a place in life, suddenly it seems like a peace comes over us, a tranquility. We're able to deal with stuff, whereas before it seemed so hectic in life. And now we're able to handle things more in a measured pace. We can accept it. And we don't get our feathers so ruffled over something that a few years ago we would have gone ballistic on. You're moving into that four. All right now, remember, four can contain three, but three cannot contain four. Keep that in mind. Uh, right now, we are in an age where we're seeing this occur, not just within ourselves, but in our country. Look at the turmoil that's going on. It's happening. Like I said, Me Too, the BLM. Uh, and I'm not trying to be political here, but some things I observed what's happened in the last four or five years, what's going on. From 2016 to now, we've seen an increase in racist behaviors. We've seen changes in the way people behave. I'm trying to do this without getting political. But that's because the administration, when they came in to begin with, appealed to a group of uh, individuals that their myth of life was being threatened. For example, I'm talking about the examples of coal miners. You can bring all the coal back. Well, stop and think about this. When you were a coal miner, generally, the family was a coal miner for several generations. That's your myth. You raised with it. But suddenly we don't want coal anymore because of the, the harmful aspects in the climate. So you see your life being threatened. And this brings out a stress in us dealing with it. How do we handle this? Uh, so we're having to make changes, not just in individuals, but within our culture. So these changes and effects with mythology and consciousness goes from the very root level of the individual to the family on through to the whole tribal community. Now, one of the things we talk about is perfection. We wear that symbol, and that's one of the things that's changing here. Not to say the symbol's gonna go away, but to understanding the symbol, to wake up and think about it. It is a symbol of perfection that we're supposed to strive for, but in reality, with the quaternary, we're bringing the feminine into us, and there is another aspect which goes into level five, the completeness. The quint means five. The quintuplets, five kids, quintessence. The quintessential means the most perfect example. Well, perfection suggests purity, no blemishes or spots, but does that exist? No. Even our apron probably has some minor marks on it already since we've had it. So it's no longer perfect. But is perfect real? Is it reasonable to think that? No, it might be a goal to shoot for. But what's more important is a thing called wholeness or completeness, and that's the fifth level. To achieve that level of completeness. And what that means is that we have to include the darkness. Each of us has darkness within us. 
and ignoring it doesn't make it go away. Every one of us at some point in our life has done something or said something and said to yourself, where in the heck did that come from? That is your unconscious talking. That's your shadow. The shadow is a part of our psyche that as we grow and go through life, we tend to put things in there. For example, give you some examples. I'm sure most of us have seen little girls when they walk around in a dress for the first time, they're playing peekaboo and bring their skirt up over their face and what happens, mom right away is it, no, no, little girls don't do that. So she learns this and she, it's a natural behavior to her, but she's being told and taught that that's not appropriate. Little boys learn that they shouldn't do things to girls and whatever. And so you get the same thing. They're just behaving naturally. They're not evil. They're just doing what comes naturally to them. But they're pressing this behavior down. That's being suppressed. Memories. Bad memories get hidden into the shadow. Those repressed. When you do this, it creates energy within our psyche. And this energy has to be balanced. The psyche is a fluid system. And when you don't do something to balance it, it will come out on its own some way. That's when that little, where did this come from? That's what's happened to you. Now artists, <clears throat> pardon me, artists tend to do this by the work they do. It can be something as easy as building like Cosmos, sitting in a restaurant or writing a book or making something craft-wise, something that allows you to bleed this psychic energy off so you have to have the balance. I want to introduce a term that Jung has called individuation. Oh, let me come back to that in a minute. There's one other thing to bring out too. We have to go through and find these dark things and come to wholeness. Now, wholeness is everywhere, but it's elusive and also nowhere. It's there within us. We just haven't found it yet. A man often sees this dark side of himself as feminine and tries to push it further away. We've heard the terms, don't be a P, you know what I mean, letter word. Uh, real men don't do this, don't do that type things. Oh, I'm not doing that. That's woman's work. So we push this away. But what this does in the basic idea is in the Middle Ages, this led to the witch burnings. For some reason or other, how many male witches do you know got burned? Witch burnings always seem to be females. What we need to do now is recognize these dark elements of our shadow and integrate them into the consciousness to create the whole. And that's what individuation is about. And the reason I mentioned the hero's journey earlier, that hero's journey is the process of individuation. You will see that in there. It's a process of transformation whereby the personal and collective unconsciousness is brought into consciousness by means of dreams, active imagination, free association, whatever. And this is a situation that you don't want to try doing this on your own. That's where masonry comes in. We've all made the path. We recognize it together and we stand together with each other to help each of us through this. By bringing these dark sides out and simulating them into our personality, we become complete. It doesn't mean we eradicate behaviors. It means we learn what they are and learn to deal with them. They are part of us, all right? Uh, this include racism, feminism, whatever. So that's part of the process in there. Now, I mentioned the lesser lights a while ago. I'm gonna come back to them in a roundabout way. These are all things that are union and they apply to us. It's just a start. Now, there's one here I'm going to talk to you about in the first degree. Talk about and a certain ladder. And then just remember, Ron, we are public. So just certain things that, okay, awesome. We talk about a certain ladder and we never mention the name of that character again. His name is Jacob. Why? Why don't we bring him up? These are clue bats. If you take the time to look at Jacob, you get the story out of the Bible of Jacob and Esau. 
That's why he's brought there. And there's a lot more than just the part I'm going to talk to you about. You need to look at that and you go back to that metaphysical Bible dictionary, Cosmo, and look through those names in there and you'll see why the story of Jacob really plays in this. If you read the story, it says that Esau, who was Jacob's twin, was born first. He's the older. And as it describes it, he came out red and very hairy. And as he came out, he, uh, Jacob's hand was holding on to his heel. Now, I've done some asking around, but I have yet to come across a doctor or any record of a twin being bored with the other twin coming behind holding on to his heel. So to me, that tells me, no, this isn't what happened. This here is a reason for this. It's a story for us to learn from. So I did some work on it. And uh, one of the sources for that one, I, get my here. I thought I had it in here with me. And I, oh, there it is. There's a book called Jacob and Esau by Eric Neumann. And he talks about the psychological side of this. This is the twin brother motif. And there's some Midrashic writings. Now, Midrashic writings are the writings by the, what used to be Pharisees and we now call rabbis. They're talking about this. And they refer to this and our lesser lights. So there's a tie between Jacob, his brother, and the lesser lights. Esau represents the man, the animal world. He's a hunter. He's a they give a guy, everybody runs out, he wants to go hunting. He, let's go out and play some football, whatever it might be today. But that's what he lived. Jacob was smaller, slight person, interior person, intellectual. Now the story very briefly is that back then the eldest was supposed to get the uh, uh, birthright passed to him from his father. Well, as he was out, Esau was out hunting out of town, across the country, whatever. Rachel came up with the idea that how uh, Jacob could have this given to him. So they connived. Isaac, his father, was old, blind. He lay in a bed, on his deathbed, basically. She cooked his favorite meal. and They took a lambskin and wrapped it around his arm so he would feel hairy, quote unquote, and sent him in with a favorite meal for his dad. And he asked his father for his blessing. blessing. And father says, you, know, you don't sound like Esau. Oh, yes, sir. Well, let me feel your arm. So he puts out the arm with the wool skin. Can you in your mind imagine anybody hairy enough that they feel like a wool skin? I can. But supposedly this fooled Isaac and he gave it to him. And this begins the story now. Rachel, his mother, is smart enough to realize that she needs to get Jacob out of there when Esau gets back, before he gets back, because otherwise Esau's going to kill him. So it begins the story. And Jacob takes off, and that's where he winds up sleeping on the rock and dreaming of the ladder that we talk about. And he goes on, and he goes back after about 14 years to make up with Esau. What could that be? That's the integration of the feminine interior with the outer animal masculine coming together. That's what we're here to do, brothers. That's what this is about. I can go on and give you more things, but I think this actually should give you enough to think about and come up with some questions you would like to ask. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Brother Ron. That was incredible. Um, you know, the thing with Young, I don't know if you've discovered this too, is uh, there's a black and white video of him talking about his discovery of the alchemical testimonies of the alchemists and how they yes. were really, you know, doing psychology and, and how he pulled from that. And, and, and then from Young, you know, we get the, uh, the he kind of classifies psychological types, talks about the collective unconsciousness, which is incredible complexes, archetypes, uh, synchronicity, as you said, shadow and analytical. But what I found interesting about him was him talking about ancestral memory. And in 2020, I kind of think and believe possibly that's stored 
in our DNA that not only our brains have memory, but I mean, cells have memory and that this memory is stored in our, in our DNA. So for instance, if you watch a great uh, National Geo or no, the BBC um, had a show called The Story of India. They talk about the out of Africa, uh, humans into India. And if you're Caucasian, your great grandfather was Indian before he was African. So in saying that, my nose, he would say, this shape could be the exact shape of my great, great grandfather who was Indian, you know, 100,000 years ago. And I just think that's incredible. And I have to believe that those archetypes and some of those memories have to be a part of me, your ancestors as well. And uh, I always found that, that just incredible in his red book as well. I would like to ask you, um, have you made any of those connections with him and, and, and his previous look into the testimonies of the alchemists? I have not had a chance. I've got record on his book, Alchemy. Uh, he did a lot of work in that. One of the other things a lot of people don't realize about him is that he had a deep involvement with the Gnostics mm, yes. in the, by 1910 through uh, late teens. He was doing a lot of work with them. And when you read the Red Book, you mentioned that. That's what you find there, Seven Letters to the Dead. That's his connection there. And that had so much to do with his development of his theory of psychology that uh, Martin Bubert was a theologian at the time, and he was attacking uh, Jung because of that, Gnostics, you know. And so, you know, Red Book is only issued in 2009. I've can you hear me now? Ron is back. Yes, brother. Nice job getting All right. back. All right. So we were just, uh, uh, Douglas, uh, brother Douglas had a question on the Red Book. Maybe you could fill us uh, some more in on the Red Book. Well, the Red Book was his experiences when he was working through the Gnostic phrase of his life. And out of there came one of his things called the active imagination, which is very heavily used in Jungian psychology. And it's where you're painting pictures of things in your mind, however, what comes to you. What's interesting in his book, he did the same thing to himself. Like I said, I run myself through models. He did the same thing to himself. And that's what you see in there is his pictures. Uh, there was a desk version, which Cosmo was referring to. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want the yeah, leather one, you're looking at $500. Yeah. There's one that's not leather bound. It's about the 200, which I have. And then there has the smaller copies that look like normal books that help you understand what's written in there going through that. That's, that's Murray Stein. Was yeah, Murray Stein, one that did, Murray Stein did a, did a um, uh, kind of a, a narrative on the book to kind of break it down, the smaller version that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. There's a variety of authors. There's one that's, uh, I believe, is an Indian individual, East Indian. He's done a lot of studies with it, too. But the thing of it is, it's interesting reading this. It's got the uh, seven letters to the dead and his other stuff in there. But it's all in German, right? Original, but it's in English now. You can get it in English. The reason they had it hidden there is he didn't want to damage his work in psychology. And in 2009, they figured the Jungian Institute figured the world was ready to receive it without looking back and negative on it. Yeah. His psychology had proven itself. But the process here is the same thing we've been talking about, the individuation process that we should all be trying to go through as we deal with this. It's a, the thing I like, that's an interesting read on that and it's very formative, but there's another one you want to look at too. And that is the symbols of transformation. Okay. Because he talks in this book, the things we see, we all dream. Now, how many of you remember your dreams the next morning? Any of you ever sit up and write it down in the morning? You should if you don't. Because your dream is your psyche talking to you. And it's telling you something. Now, for a while there, I quit dreaming. At least I couldn't remember them as in my other life. I remember my dreams as a kid. I, I love dreaming. I developed the ability to get up in the middle of the night to go wee. And hold on to that dream, come back, get back in bed, and pick it up again most of the time right where I left off. 
remember I had dreams that I used to be able to fly. It was, just, it was fun to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then I got in the real world in stage three and life overwhelmed me. And I was stressing, couldn't sleep well. I wasn't dreaming. I remember dreams. Then I went off to school again and started the PhD program. And one of the things we dealt with there was dreams and stuff. And I started looking into this and something I was dreaming again. And now I have my peace back. And now I pay attention to my dreams. And I try to think about them in the morning. Just what is this dream about? Well, this is where the symbols of transformation come in because the dream talks to you in symbols. And it may not be what you think it is on the very surface initially. So that's where you want to look at that. Are you worrying about dreams? Symbols of transformation. And you can take those same symbols and go back into our writings. Sure. And work with them that way. Yeah, it's amazing. Those archetypes are, are, are in us. Yeah, Brother there. Cosmo. Yes, I do have a, uh, it's more of a, just to, to add to what Brother uh, Ron was talking earlier about Jacob's Ladder. Uh, I actually have a chapter in the book on that. Uh, that always fascinated me in the lodge. And, and I've done some research on it. Um, one, of my, one of my search led me through Daniel Matt. Um, in fact, that's, that was the, the, very, the very symbol that got me into Kabbalah and uh, studying the, the, um, basically the, the writings of Daniel Matt. Uh, and he, he did talk about, it's interesting, there's, there's, there's interesting because you talked about the, the male and the female coming together, integration. Mm-hmm. And when I came up with the latter in, in the Kabbalistic point of view, it's more like uh, he talks, he talks at the latter uh, being of a bed and he sleeps on it. And that's where the stone was the pillow. And, and then he had these two angels, he had Michael and, and the other angel, Samuel, they came down and they control each side of the ladder. And uh, one obviously was Samuel, as we all know, is, is a representation of Lucifer and the dark side of our, of our psyche. And then Michael was bringing over all the good things in, uh, uh, from, 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 from God down to, to earth. And when you integrate them together, you're a whole. You're basically, that's how you move to this ladder. And, and that's what remind me of when you were talking about the, the female and male integration, because that's also in there as well, you know. And then the several liberal arts and sciences come together uh, through the ladder as well. So um, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's one of my favorite um, symbols within that, that first degree. So that's one of Rick, you mentioned the archetypes. People, most people don't quite understand what an archetype is. We all have them. There's innumerable numbers of them. They're in your community subconscious, the communal unconsciousness. We all have them. I've done experiments with this, talking to people. For example, when you mention the evil stepmother, that's an archetype. You think of an archetype as being two-dimensional to begin with. It's like a sheet of paper, and they're stacked in leaves and all this in our unconsciousness. And they get fleshed out based upon our experience. Experiences. So evil stepmother, a lot of times people think of the evil stepmother as Cinderella's evil stepmother. We see that picture. Or the wise old man, or the wise old woman, the witch. How do we describe them? Based upon our experiences and our culture. And they will flesh out. Those are things we look at. That's where our fight or flight syndromes are in that uncon- the communal unconsciousness. We've been taught that over time. Our memories over thousands and thousands of years are all in there. The tribal memories, the communal memories, our family members, they all have a piece of it. Once you understand that and look at what they are, you can look at them knowingly. And that's the whole purpose of this is learning to recognize something and not push it aside because you don't understand it. Pick it up, turn it around, look at it. What is this? What does it really mean? The unknown is what makes us stressful. That's what creates the problems. When we pick something up and know it, we can deal with it. It loses its its uh, fear for us. Yeah, it's like they say, you know, we, we fear what we don't know, but, you know, you do have to step out to experience life or you're just not going to experience it. You just got to go face that fear 
let the horns come out and and go for it. Uh, Brother Douglas, who uh, I think you've been on every show. I want to thank you for always joining us. Uh, You've got a question. Yeah, um, I'd like uh, maybe you could talk a little bit, Ron, about uh, community consciousness and Freemasonry. Um, I've listened to some of the lectures at the Young uh, Institute in Chicago, and they talked about this idea of community consciousness of this, I, this, this, uh, just, maybe I just ask you, because okay. I know in Freemasonry, we're, we're all doing the same thing. And we've been doing it for <clears throat> a couple hundred years, maybe a couple thousand years. Uh, we're doing this initiatic process. And then we have this kind of thing that happens in Masonry that we're doing, and it's happening all over the world. And where does that sink in with Jung and community consciousness? All right, let's talk about the psyche for a few minutes here. I want you to picture in your mind an egg. You know, you have one egg and the egg is bigger than the other one. So think of the smaller end as being the front of the mind, so to speak. Maybe an eighth of that egg on the front end is our personal consciousness. I look at it this way. The personal consciousness is the RAM on a computer. It's where things that are happening. Behind that is the personal unconsciousness. And that's where things go. For example, uh, I took geometry in high school, got an A in it. I instinctively look at the angles and have an idea about them, but I couldn't prove it to you because I never use it. Uh, I used to be really good at algebra, but I don't use algebra anymore. So it gets put back in the personal unconscious. We haven't forgotten it. We could bring it back out, but that's the personal consciousness. Behind that is the community, a communal unconsciousness. Now, go back up here in front, there's a thing called the ego. And most of it's in the unconscious, part of it's in the consciousness. And these are all, there's nothing in there that when the surgeon goes, oh, there's the ego, there's it, you know, it doesn't work that way, but that's basically the way Jung describes it. The ego thinks it runs the show. And all it does is it's learned over life to flash a persona, a mask, based upon what's happening. You've learned these things, what works for you. And with young guys, I use this example, and every young guy I talk to knows exactly what I'm talking about when I give it to them. I tell them, think of yourself here. You're in with a bunch of guys having a good time, maybe having a beer or whatever. What are you portraying at that point? Give a minute or two to think about it, and then now, a good-looking woman walks by you and smiles at you. What's hit your mind immediately? And they understand. They understand instantly what I'm talking about because the instant flash when that woman smiles at you just wipes out everything you had with the guys. As soon as she moves on, they come back in again. That's what the ego does. It learns to put these personas in place based upon what's happening to you and it thinks it runs the show. And it does not like to be changed. That's part of our problem because that's exactly what we're trying to change. Behind this is their personal consciousness. In here is hidden all of humanity's memories, whether we realize it or not. It's impressed in them how in our DNA. We can't sit down and find the blueprint, but it's there. And all the things we've been taught. But there's also a part of it, this is my belief, there's a part of it that knows right from wrong. We know this is the way it should be, not the way things are happening. But we don't stop that because the ego has been taught this is the way we are supposed to be in our society. We've got this cultural impact. What we're doing in masonry is trying to go back into there and bring these things out, deal with these things that are in the shadow, that are negative things, and bring them together and integrate them into the whole in a good way to make us whole. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yes. Uh, just elaborate a little bit about when Jung gets into this discussion, I don't understand completely at all, probably between the ego and the self. The self is the whole picture, everything. Ego is this little piece down here thinking it's the boss. The self is this. 
And what you're doing is moving the perceived control from here to here. You're where, integrating all the other stuff in there. Where does the soul fit into all of this? Body, spirit, and soul. This is an issue that is very much uh, discussed. Now, that's the way I see it, and I don't have the writings at hand that back me up, but we look at the South. That's the animal. That's the material world. The soul is the intellect. It's in this West. And that's where the mind works. The spirit is in the West, or East, I mean. And that is where the connection is made with the deity. Does that make sense? have to work on it <laughs> okay yeah i'd love to add to that too guys um you know i guess i would say coming into freemasonry applies to freemasonry is i was a christian so what christianity helped me with was forgiving myself and forgiving others because of that example now when i came into freemasonry the symbol that hit me right between the eyes was the ashlar the rough and the smooth an understanding building, I can't, I can't work with that rough one. And being aware of the rough one, that's my mind. Those are those, that is the talker uh, that's inside of me. That's the ego or that is the shadow. Freemasonry helped me be aware of that to where it controlled everything before joining. It actually helped me to step back and go, whoa, look at this thing. Now communal or whatever in Freemasonry, Brother Cosmo, as an example, we've been brothers now for, for quite a few years. Now that I have this ego, I can't really see it, but my brother can. He can see it clearly, and he can tell me, brother, here's a little spot right here, and he can take his tool and even and help me work on it to make it smooth. And together, we're working on, on our egos or this, this machine in our head um, that just wants to survive to be better people. And we do that with each other. And there's a lot of trust there. And, and in Freemasonry, you know, when you meet a brother, almost all the time you get a decency. The soul, the way I would explain it for me would be the experiencer. When you feel, it doesn't have words. It can't explain. It can't talk about what it sees, what it experiences. That's why truth is so hard to talk about and understand. But it's that thing when you see something, whether good or bad, it hits you. And you, 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 you can feel it. So, again, this is just speculation on, on, on personal experiences. How about you, Cosmo? The good news is in my next book, um, Death and the Freemason, it's all, in fact, I'm picking up the work of uh, the Brother Ashby up in England um, to write another sequel on Freemasonry, death, the whole process of what it actually means to, to die and to live. And uh, I've been doing, I started doing some research on this. And uh, one of the things that stood me up, the first thing that came to my mind is um, Albert Pike's, one of his, one of his um, uh, lines in, in one of his in chapters is that the, the dead governs while the living obey. And that just kind of hit me because the whole idea of dying is not really dying, it's living. So when, you, when we die, we actually are born into heaven you don't die and go to heaven you're born into heaven and we're already dead in in, in some ways so uh, i'm based on that premise you know i kind of started to 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 do more research and expand on this and um uh, and again young has some pretty good things you know the about death and the seven letters and this brother ron just mentioned it that's something that i'm digging into as well because the soul the mind the body it, it's kind of an integration of all three. You got to have all three. You, you, if you miss one of them, you're, you know, you're, you're going to be out of balance in life. So that's your comment I'm, about being involved yeah. into death. You know, that, that's really true. We're yeah. in heaven. The Bible tells us mm -hmm. heaven is within us. Yep. They but all do. So they're blue in the face. It's inside guys. <laughs> it's in yeah. here. Everybody's <laughs> looking up here. I'm going to go. No, it's right here. You carry yeah. it with you. I'm a firm believer you live in hell or you live in heaven. Been there. Yes, we all have. Uh, uh, Brother Francisco, thank you for joining us. He has a question. 
Thank you so much, uh, brothers, for the opportunity. Um, Brother Ron, um, I've always had a, a doubt. Um, a long time ago, I stumbled into some Gnostic writings. Uh, there's an author called Samael, and he um, explained to me a, a process of meditation. My belief, and, and of course I could be wrong, is that everything that we've, you know, not filtered through our conscious mind when we were growing up is into, into some extent being manifested in our, in our reality today. And uh, I've always been concerned uh, with the term co-creating our own reality. And I know that it's a touchy subject sometimes, uh, but what I do is that every morning um, I will wake up and when I am between those states of, um, I think it's beta, alpha, um, you know, brain waves, I start meditating on things or visualizing them in my mind. And I try to put into my subconscious mind all these positive attributes that I've received from, you know, philosophy, masonry in general. And in some instances, I've seen that what I am visualizing, it's being, and this is where it gets tricky. I don't know if it's being co-created by me, but those things starts to happen with me. Uh, you know, in, 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 in the future. I just wanted to ask you your insight of what exactly am I doing because I've, I've seen it work for me. Thank you, brothers. I think you are having an influence on it. We don't realize the influence we can have upon ourselves. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the East Indian author. He's very common over here. One of the first reads I had but I don't know if the name goes, I'm sure you'll recognize it. One of his writings beyond that I read that he described the world, so to speak, as being like a sheet or cloth. And all the threads wove between together with it. And each where threads touched together, crossed, you think of it as being an individual. And what happened to one corner there, one person would affect those around him. When I read this, I thought about it, and then part of the description was talking about things like taking a glass of water, and you sprinkle a little bit of pepper on it, what happens to it? The water tends to part away from it. Whereas if you put salt in, the water sucks into it. And he was talking about uh, our emotions, the energies, the things we give off, the co-creation you're talking about. You're focusing on this. You're putting energy into it. And I thought about that, and I realized that was probably true for me because at times in my life when I was in a negative place, I gave off negative energies and I got negative back. Whereas you know, I gave off positive energies, the things I wanted came to me. I think when we focus on things like this, we are, as you call it, co-creating our reality because we're focusing on the things we deem to be important to us, they're deemed to be favorable to us. Now that isn't to mean that you can sit there and necessarily focus on the idea, I'm gonna have a million bucks and wake up later on and here's a million bucks. That's not the thing that happens. It's the world around us, how we mesh with each other, that we interact. And when you have in the positive thoughts, good things come to us. Kind of getting psychologically here at the same time, but. I'm a firm believer that everything happens to us in life for a reason. And we're going through the life of a journey with lessons to be learned. And when we don't learn the lesson here, it's going to occur over here. Maybe look a little different, but it's basically the same damn lesson. You better learn it sooner or later, or you're going to keep crossing it. That's the way life is. That help you any? That's right. a wonderful answer. Thank you, Ron. And friend, brother Francisco, you know, there's a lot of us that are doing this. I was so happy to hear you say that. Nobody's told us to do this in the morning, but for some reason, there's a bunch of us that are starting our mornings. I've recently started doing this in meditation. 
and getting to that space of not projecting forward or backwards, but just getting into that space of positivity. And then as I go through the day, it's not that I'm sending brain vibes out, it's collecting atoms and forming things. Does that happen? Yes, we know that. But because I put myself in that state, now every thought, every word creates the action out here is now going to be positive. Even if it comes back a certain way, I can even take it a little, little easier. Thank you so much for sharing that. I get the chills when I hear people uh, doing what you're doing in the morning because there's a lot of us doing it. And if and a bunch of us keep doing it, the world will change. <laughs> well, there's a couple of lodges, you know, the Adobe Lodge and uh, Ascension Lodge. Both of us practice meditation before the actual hammer falls. Fantastic. Now, I'll be honest, the time frame that we do it in isn't enough time. But if you keep in mind our lodge meetings, a lodge meeting, the way it's conducted, and let's talk in a ritual in a few minutes here, is to teach us something. We just have a few minutes. Okay. And the idea, wow, the idea of the ritual is to teach us a way to live. And so the idea of putting the meditation in the front one teaches we should be meditating because it is beneficial to each and every one of us. It solves, if you're doing it properly, and it's not like a science, or a mage science, but it's learning to focus inwards and shut the outer world out. That takes some time, practice to do. We get peace and tranquility. We're able to focus on things properly. In a way, that's what prayer does for us, too. When you pray, that's what you're doing. You're focusing and shutting everything else out, and you're bringing the answer. We have the answers within us. We just don't listen to them. I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts here before we go to get in the high light morning. Uh, I think one of the most important things, this is from an individual named Desharin, the most important thing in life is finding yourself. And this goes with it. Uh, Guru Nanak says, by conquering your mind, you conquer the world. And the Rinpoche says, do not encumber your mind with useless thoughts. What, does, what good does it do to brood on the past or anticipate the future? Remain in simplicity of the present moment. We spend our life worrying about, I screwed up here. What am I going to do tomorrow? You can't do anything about either one of those. Look at today. Focus today. Get your time where you want to be. Meditate. Get your mind right. It will all solve. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Brother Ron. We're going to close here. We, we did have one question here, and I think you would agree with me, Brother Ron. Uh, the question was, uh, if reaching wholeness is to achieve, and that is the goal or role of Freemasonry, then what are the second and third degrees for? I, I would recommend uh, Brother David check out a video online on YouTube. Just search Kirk McNulty uh, Masonry and Kabbalah, and there he will show you the material, the spiritual, second and third degree as they come together. I, he does a phenomenal presentation on that. I don't know, Ron, would you agree? I agree. That, uh, also, his book, uh, The Way of the Craftsman, if you like to read, I'm a reader. But The Way of the Craftsman has pictures and stuff, and it's Kurt does such an excellent job of tying Freemasonry to what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at that, you'll see it. It gives you, it's unbelievable. If anybody needs a copy, I have a case of them here. Awesome. Literally. Well, how can people get a hold of you, Brother Ron? I'm very easy to reach by email. It's a very difficult email. The name is ron at rwrichards.us. <laughs> Let me write that down. I'm going I'm to take, take a week to memorize. Now. <laughs> That's memory palace stuff you're giving us now. Come on. <laughs> Well, guys, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, we're going to be back on the second Friday of next month with uh, Martin Falks from uh, England. It's going to be incredible. And we're going to be discussing memory palaces and Bruno and uh, all that incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to thank everybody on Facebook Live for joining us as well. Again, you can go back to our Facebook page. Uh, you can also find it by just going to unknownphilosophers.com. And what we do is after we do the live videos, I'll go back and do a studio cut and then, and then upload them. So you guys can go back and watch Johnny Royal, uh, Timothy Hogan, uh, Dawkins, and, and McIntosh, and all these 
incredible uh, guests that we've had. Cosmo, uh, anything uh, else you'd like to leave us with? No, I, I just uh, feel very blessed to have uh, Brother Ron on. Uh, hopefully we'll have him on again in the future for uh, the topics. Um, yes. And uh, learn a lot today. I just ordered like six books in this, in this hour. So <laughs> it seems like every time we're on the show, we're, you know, I'm always ordering something. <laughs> but yeah. then I found them because I was looking for those books. So, um, yeah. you know, but thank you. Go ahead. Thank you for being on the show. That's all I want to say. I want to say thank you for asking me to be with you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it helped me getting ready for this to keep my mind wrapped around things. I got a lot going on in my personal life here, so this gives me the opportunity to get my mind wrapped back around things that are important. Getting more back into that fourth level, away from the third level. I've been struggling with that for a while. We're well, looking good. You're looking good, you're looking bright, and as we close here, I think you just did it, but maybe if you can just do it one more time, leave us just a couple more words of uh, encouragement for the week, and then I'm going to close it down, and we'll see you guys again in a few weeks, and then Cosmo and I will be excited in two weeks again. <laughs> okay, here's one last thing. To think is easy, to act is hard, but the hardest thing in the world is to act in accordance with your thinking.